After dropping out of the American market in 1991, French automaker PSA wants back in. Before it starts building or selling cars, it wants to launch a ride-sharing service called Free to Move. Larry Dominique, the CEO of PSA North America, talks about their plans and how big this business could be. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. I want to thank you for joining us on AutoLine this week. You know, the automotive industry is moving into a brave new world of what they call mobility services. You know, all that ride sharing and ride hailing where you just use your phone and an app to get the ride that you want. Well, there's a new company coming into the business, PSA. That's the parent company of Peugeot and Citroën out of France. And our special guest for today's show is Larry Dominique, the CEO of PSA North America, and it's great to have you on AutoLine this week, Larry. Great. Thanks, John. It's always fun to be here and talk about the industry we all love so much. Hmm. Also joining us today are Michelle Krebs, an executive analyst with AutoTrader, and Paul Eisenstein, the publisher of the DetroitBureau.com, and great to have the both great of you here, you. too. So, Larry, let's talk about all this ride-sharing, ride-hailing, and where is it going? I mean, how big might this get? Describe for us how big the market might be, and then we want to drill down into what PSA is doing? You know, it's a great question, John, because mobility is a buzzword we're all hearing about. But the more people I ask to define what mobility is, I get a lot of different answers, right? The reality is we think of mobility as a service, Moz, as some people coin it. How big the market is, is almost anyone's guess. I've heard everything from $50 billion to $100 billion by 2025, 2030. And put that against the context of new car auto sales this year were about $500 billion dollars from a context point of view. But the reality is we are seeing levels of urbanization, both in the United States and globally. Um, We hear about 50% of the world lives in city environments or urban environments. That's going to move up to 60%. I don't think the U.S. is quite as robust in those numbers as some of the other countries like China. But the reality is we are seeing younger people looking for alternatives, especially in urban settings. How can I get around? How can I move around? I go to San Francisco a lot. I see people on electric scooters that are rented and bicycles that are rented and car sharing and ride hailing. So there is this ecosystem or this marketplace called mobility, which I think is still looking for its place, where it is, what it's going to be. We as automakers obviously want to be in that that activity relative to automobiles. But we at Group PSA have a different approach. We launched last October here in North America our free-to-move aggregation platform, which think of Expedia and Orbitz, we are an aggregator for mobility services. So one-stop shop, whether you want to rent a bicycle, a scooter, or a car for a period of time. So we do believe that this marketplace is going to grow over time. And the really important part for us, it's going to become, we like to think of it inside Group PSA as a customer for life. How can we make sure that we are not only the provider of our core business, which is automobiles, but how can we be a service provider to you as well? and provide you with an experience that's much broader than just the retail transaction. Mm-hmm. So the company was here mm-hmm. many years ago, left the market. Why come back now? And could you walk through kind of what your plan is? You've talked about it being sure. a 10-year plan. What's, how, how's that going to roll out? Yeah, so under the auspices of Carlos Tavares, our global CEO, when he came into Group PSA in, in 2014, he basically developed a recovery plan for Group PSA. Group PSA was struggling at the time. And his first plan, which was, was called Back in the Race, brought PSA back on a, a financial footing, strong, strong performance. Matter of fact, we were in the top five with an operating margin of 7.3% this mm-hmm. past year, one of the top five in the world. And 
what he realizes in this next phase, which we refer to as push to pass, it's a racing term. Our CEO likes to race, and we're using racing terms. This next phase is about not only improving our per core performance, but also growing mobility and growing globally. You can't be a global automaker unless you're in all the key markets in the world. And we were absent in two key markets. One was India. The other was North America. So as you guys know, he's well aware of this market. He ran Nissan in the Americas for a few years. So coming back to North America was an important part of that. Second largest market in the world, by far the most profitable market in the world. How do you not be here, right? So when he first approached me, he said, we're developing this three-phase plan, starting with mobility without cars, mobility with our cars, and then car sales. Mm -hmm. And the reason, the reason for that was there, the way I like to think of it, there's not exactly a lineup outside of my office in Atlanta of people saying, how fast can I buy one of your cars, right? Mm -hmm. There's 42 brands in the U.S. today, probably 45 by the time we launch our first car. There's 330 models. There'll be 350 models within a few years. How do you make sure in this very high distribution cost environment can you successfully launch a brand, scale that brand, and be successful where you can step in and don't have to worry about stepping back out again? And being a greenfield, which we can talk about too, offers us some unique opportunities that other OEMs maybe just don't have. Larry, there are two things that come up from what you've just talked about, and I want to I want to get you to address them separately. Mm -hmm. uh, one is the issue of being in all key markets. General Motors, which sort of defined that concept, has absolutely reversed it, and I think taken a lot of people by surprise, saying, "No, you only need to be in the markets where you're going to make you're making money, and think you will make money." So I want to get you to address that. But the other one, the longer term, let's let's first turn to mobility. Uh, Boston Consulting Group recently came out with a study. They estimate a quarter of the miles driven in the United States will be in ride-sharing vehicles, probably electrified, if not all electric, uh, by the end of the next decade. And at that point, who cares what model they're driving in? I mean, today, uh, unless I see uh, on my smartphone that I'm going to get picked up by an Uber in a car that I really think is awful, I may cancel the ride then. But most of the time, I don't really care what shows up. Mm -hmm. So if we're moving to, a, to that environment, particularly overseas, who cares if PSA comes back or not? Uh, I yeah. just care about Uber or Lyft or Waymo or whomever. It's a fair assessment. And, and when you look at the marketplace, I mentioned that $500 million to $50 to $100 billion of mobility, right? right. Ride hailing falls under that mobility scheme, right? Mm -hmm. So if you live in rural I Idaho, car sharing and car ride hailing probably doesn't mean anything to you. Autonomy doesn't mean anything to you. If you live in San Francisco or Boston or Chicago, maybe it does. Mm -hmm. So the reality is we see this evolving marketplace where there's going to be branded, there's going to be private car ownership, but there's also going to be this other ecosystem, complementary, which is for people who don't want to own or need alternative transportation. And that might be for people who don't own at all. It might be people who own and peer-to-peer -peer car share, like brands like Toro and things like that do. Or it might be just people who never care about ownership and don't care about driving. They just want to be driven. So I expect 25, 30 years from now, you're going to see an ecosystem that has elements of all of those pieces. So what it means from a branding point of view is I want to be a branded offering that offers people emotional and important reasons to buy my brand. But at the same time, and the reason we're pushing towards mobility, is we also want to be a service provider. That's why we launched, if you look at our global website, our PSA group, we have five brands and Freedom Move. They're on equal billing, equal footing, because to us, Freedom Move mobility is just important as Peugeot, Opel, Vauxhall, DS, or Citroen. 
Larry, let's uh, walk through the business case of this we, a little bit. What, one, one sec. Yeah. What kind of money can you make on this? What kind yeah. of margins are there out there? Yeah. What's, what's driving the business plan for PSA to get into this? So, so let's talk about automotive for a minute. We are a high-revenue, high-cost, high-regulated business. What's the typical return on sales for an automotive company? 4%, right? What's the typical return on investment for a technology company? Way above that. It's way above that. Not only in valuation, but in revenue, because once you scale, it's free. To the most part, it's free once you scale. So mobility as a service allows you to have specific revenues in certain verticals, like a car sharing model, for example. But also, if you're a service provider, if you're an aggregator, for example, like we are, you have the opportunity to tap into a piece of every transaction, right? And instead of selling X number of cars per year to X number of consumers, you now have the potential to have a customer base that's magnitudes higher because you have a million customers, right, for your app or your service, not just the 50,000 that bought your car that year. Mm -hmm. So revenue never looks balanced because the transaction prices are $33,000, $34,000 times $17 million. It's a lot of revenue, right? But, on a, but the cost associated with that business is very high, right? So as we talk about distribution and models, we also want to help change that paradigm a little bit as well. But we do believe it's complementary. And we do believe that not only within the services, we've talked about autonomous vehicles and, and vehicles within ride hailing and car sharing. We still want to produce those. <laughs> and we still want to sell those. But you're not selling them to private owners. And there's another piece to it that at some point, I don't know if we'll have time today, but in that environment, where you're fully depreciating an asset, where does the used car market go? All of a sudden, you're losing this typical three-year depreciation, whether it's leases or whether it's car sharing, vehicles getting remarketed. Now you have services that have to depreciate an asset to zero, and it changes the accessibility of used cars in the future that no one that I know I was really talking about lately. What you're saying is there aren't going to, going to be used cars in the future coming out of these mobility services. Could be. Because the cars are going to be worn out. Correct. Could be. And if you're developing an autonomous pod... That's just great for what it does. Where would you remarket it? To whom? Okay, let, let's get a little bit more specific. Uh, average car company makes about 4%. That's for the mass return market lines. Maybe the luxury guys are making about a 10% return operating profit. Mm -hmm. What kind of return can you make in mobility services with, with your ride-sharing app? So I think, so from, from an aggregation point of view, I think you could make, because the investment is so much smaller, you can make it very high, like 30, 40, 60 multiple, right? Things like car sharing and ride sharing is a little different because you have the asset, you have the car, you have the services, you have the cost associated with operating the business. So the physical activities have a lower return. The digital environment has a much higher potential. So what about Tesla, which is uh, talking in incredible numbers? Elon Musk, uh, after telling a couple of uh, analysts to shut up during, the, mm -hmm. during his call the other day, did make a point of saying that he expects to be at 20% margin. 25% on 20, Model 3. 20, 25% margins this year, and maybe even 30% almost by the end of next year. It's a big shift from $6,500 a minute loss, right? Yeah, right. But, but when we think about that business, so one thing we know from our analysis of the U.S. market and Europe as well and other markets we are the highest distribution cost market in the world for cars, right? right? And how is that made up? If you look at the pieces of that pie, everything from the dealer margin to the incentive spend to the back-end kind of remuneration that goes to dealers and other aspects of the business, logistics, warranty, and so forth, it ends up, you know, based on the latest NADA, you know, every U.S. dealer is losing an average of $421 per new vehicle sold. 
with a gross making up. Making it up in volume. Right? And making it up in volume or <laughs> through some other checks that are being, you know, paid through through other types of remuneration. Right. With such a, a disproportionately un, unperforming new car, you know, retail, dealers have become dependent and the industry has become dependent on the other things, the F&I, the, the service, the, the, the OEM support, you know, for retros and stair steps and so forth. We really need to look at the future environment. I think this is where Tesla's going is, can you lower the total distribution cost by having a better experience, lower fixed costs? Because today we have huge fixed costs in our industry. Dealers build huge dealerships primarily based on OEM requests. They build big dealerships with high mortgages and have to have high throughput just to, to be able to break even. What if we could change that paradigm based on the new technologies and the new processes that customers are looking for and make new car sales profitable again. That's what we want to see. So paint a picture go. of what that looks like um, uh, in terms of when you get to the point of having selling cars and mm-hmm. what does that distribution system look like? What does, do you do dealers? Do, how does so, that work? So we've surveyed thousands and thousands of American consumers, and 90% of them have told us that they would like to do most or all of the process online. They tell us the same thing, right? yeah. mm-hmm. But then they also say, but, but I still want to test drive it, mm-hmm. right? And I still need to get it serviced, right? So we know through the, through the retail process and through the ownership process, there are a series of physical touch points that still have to be met. But do those physical touch points need to be met in a Taj Mahal type of dealership with a 12-car showroom with a special cappuccino machine and a 30-bay service facility right behind it, which, by the way, the OEM has said it has exclusive to that brand. You can't serve any other vehicle in that, brand, in that facility. So now the dealer has to figure out a way to get that service bay running at 99% efficiency to keep it running. Why does it have to be on expensive real estate, right? So relative to if I specify a special tile or a special fabric on the chairs, I'm not sure that's going to sell one more car than giving the customer a better experience, right? Making it easier to configure a car. Maybe you bring the car to them for delivery. Maybe you bring test drives to them. Maybe they have facilities they can go to to test drive your vehicles. But it doesn't require this fixed asset hub, so to speak. So you can be more agile, lower investments, better return on investment. Because if, if I'm having the vehicle brought to service, whether that service facility has my brand on the front, you don't care. All you know is that the car went away for a little while, it got fixed, and it came back, Right. So, so we believe there's a different ways to look at this environment, which as a greenfield OEM, we have a more flexible way to look at this, this model than maybe the existing structures that are out there today. Do you still use dealers, franchise dealers? Because that's been the issue with Tesla battling franchise dealer laws. So, so when, you, when you look at the franchise law, there are 45 states in this country that have prohibitive laws against direct selling. There are five that allow direct selling. Four of those five, the moment you have a franchise dealer, you can no longer sell direct. So in theory, you could say 49 states at some point could be that way. The laws are in place, but what a lot of people don't think about is there is still a lot of flexibility within the franchise laws. People assume today's model that is set up everywhere is franchise compliant, and it is. But it's actually built itself into a much more prohibitive and and sometimes adversarial relationship between OEMs and dealers than it needs to be. Mm-hmm. And data is probably one of the biggest hinge points on that. Who owns the data? Who owns the customer? Mm-hmm. We believe if you're going to be in all the states, you have to be legally compliant if you're going to distribute in certain states. But how you execute that, how you develop it, how you deploy it from a platform point of view and, and, a, and, a, and a partnership point of view. So we like to use words like retail partner, 
you know, and agile and scalable and those kind of things and asset light, because those are the things that are going to drive the ability to get cost out, reduce the throughput necessary for anybody to make a profit selling new cars. And today it's just not set up that way. I want to get back to that question from earlier. Why does PSA need to be in every market? GM is setting a new model that says we'll only be where we make money. Yeah, and, and we will make money. Yeah, so this, so that, that's predicated. I have, no, I have no doubt I will make money in this market, right? And, and what that means, Paul, is it's a, it's a 17 million market, right? Mm-hmm. Out of 100, 120 million global market, right? So there is great opportunity here if you have the right products, if you have the right process, if you have the right distribution model that allows you to be profitable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in 2030 or 2050, we're going to have 400 and something million people in the United States. It's a lot of mobility services. Mm-hmm. It's still a lot of potential automobiles that are going to be sold and serviced in the United States. So we believe this is a, a market that's worth coming to. But we're going to do it in a way that we focus on branding and we focus on the ability to build a business in a successful way. Uh, Carlos Tavares likes to remind me I'm an old car guy. But I have to think in a new way. And over the last 15 months I've been in this role, I have developed myself as a bit of a, a convert to thinking about new ways because I was born and raised in this town of Detroit and I grew up in a, a Ford family and I grew up in the auto business. So I've literally been in this business for 56 years. But the world is changing around us faster than we would like to admit. When I stepped outside and went to True Car and ALG for a while, I saw how fast technology is changing. I have an office in San Francisco and their sole job is to work with VCs and startups and Silicon Valley. And I'm seeing how fast the technology is changing. So bring us up to speed. Where, do, where does uh, PSA North America stand right now? What was your effort with Free to Move? Yep. Give us a snapshot in time as sure. to what you've achieved so far. So we've got parallel paths going on. I talked about the three phases, mobility without, mobility with, and, then, and vehicle sales. We launched Free to Move last October. We're going to be announcing, hopefully in the next month or so, our first physical car sharing under the Freedom Move brand in North America. It's going to be on the East Coast. I can't say what city yet. We're finalizing some stuff. But that'll be launched uh, in the, hopefully in the third quarter of this year. Uh, and, that will, and one of the things from a technology point of view, we're also going to be incorporating over time our car sharing into our Freedom Move aggregation platform. So you won't have to download multiple applications just to get to our thing. You just download one. Uh, the other thing we're doing with our, our Freedom Move aggregation we're going to be rolling out multi-provider registration. What that means is you come into the Freedom Move app, you download your driver's license once, your credit card once, and now you have access to all of our providers. You don't have to go to their native apps to download all that information again. So over the next year, we're continuing to look at B2B mobility opportunities. We're looking at scaling car sharing. We're bringing on more partners on the Freedom Move aggregation to strengthen that. So there's a lot of stuff going on on the mobility side. And I, hired a, uh, I have a new VP of mobility, Lynn Blake. She's been on since late September, and she's responsible for all mobility activities in North America for me. On the metallic side or the car side, we're in the process of, of planning and studying you know, the distribution schema. We've been doing a lot of research with consumers, segmentation work, product development, brand development, because we want to build this, this model which allows us to plan how we're going to develop our communication or deployment strategy based on a cohesive strategy. And that takes a lot of work. Trust me, it's a lot of work. <laughs> what, what, in a year or so, as you pull all this together, I, as a consumer, I pull out my smartphone mm-hmm. and I go to the Free to Move app. Uh, 
will I basically, if I, if I understand this mm -hmm. correctly, will I be in a situation where if I want to get from point A to point B uh, with a couple of paths through mm -hmm. the middle, I'll be able to aggregate it so uh, a ride-sharing vehicle might pick me up, take me to a train station, take me to somewhere where I can get a car sharing, mm -hmm. and then rent a scooter yeah. if I need to? Yeah, you know, first mile, last mile, right, is what, the way we determine. Actually, the Europeans say first kilometer, last kilometer, but... But basically the idea, Paul, would be in certain cities, not every city would we have all the providers that would allow you that soup to nuts kind of solution. Yeah. But if you go to a city like a Seattle, which is very progressive with mobility providers. Or San Francisco. Or San Francisco. And you want to get from the airport to a meeting. And we could start with the ride hailing. We could end up with a car share or even a bicycle or even electric scooter if you want to do that. And, and what happens? It, it basically everything is reserved along the way. It Correct. tells me from here to here you have this option you mm -hmm. can choose. And each step of the way, I don't have to stop and figure out now what do I do. I don't have to go new, buying new tickets. I'm pretty much, I've got the app, and uh, maybe, it, maybe it's Apple Pay or whatever. Yep. And everything along the way, I just walk into it, I walk up to it, it unlocks, Correct. opens the door or whatever. Because your smartphone is the key to everything that you're doing with this, whether it's Bluetooth or whether it's a code or whatever it might be, but the key is the thing. And already in Europe, we have pretty close to the soup to nuts. Our freedom move started out as a company called Car Jump in Germany, mm -hmm. and Germany is probably our most mature market. Yeah. Uh, they've got 50 providers that provide services in, in Germany, and it literally is a first kilometer to last kilometer kind mm -hmm. of relationship. We want to build that here. We're a little different. U.S. is a lot more national players than fragmented small country. It's not like in Europe, it's almost like Ohio has their own and Pennsylvania has their own. Yeah. Here, we have a lot more national providers. So developing those relationships. But for us, it's also key to bring on um, mass transit providers right, in different cities. And that's a very city-by-city city kind of development yeah. as well. So the business development, part and development side is key. This is similar to the, uh, the system that Mercedes and BMW are joining up. They just Correct. announced in the New York Auto Show they're going to do something similar to this. Yes, and that's still under scrutiny in Europe from a right. review point of view. And how, how big can a concept like this get? How many millions of people do you hope start using a service like this? You know, let's see, there's 300 and how many million people in the United States? 350. Yeah, I'd like every single one of them to have the Freedom of App on their phone. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay, so you're talking about you know, where you are now, yep. we talked about selling cars. I assume there's a plan for an autonomous, electrified future, because that seems to be what the company has talked about. Yep. What do, how does that play here? So when we talk about electrification, Carlos Tavares has announced that by 2025, we will have electrified offerings on every platform and every vehicle we have globally. Now, that could mean some vehicles offer multimodal, whether it's ICE, PHEV, BEV. Some models may be BEV only, you know, those kind of things. So. That's being defined. We just announced our DS brand on a global basis. This is going to be electrified powertrains only starting in 2025. So electrification is, is part of everyone's future. Mm -hmm. It's the reality. Autonomy, we have relationships. We have our own autonomous development going on. We have a partnership with another company that we're running in Singapore right now. So we also recognize autonomy as part of the future as well. Um, are we one of the people out in front running to develop that? No. We're probably, we're trying to keep along with the ride, so to speak. Um, but PSA has a lot of other priorities that we're trying to manage as well. And so just managing that balance between it. But it's going to be there. And the, I'm really happy with what I'm seeing from the powertrain and the electrification point of view coming. I'm really excited about the specs and the features and the performance that are coming. 
Larry, how many mobility providers can there be? It seems everybody's yeah. jumping into the pool. And everybody can. And yeah, and when you look at the airline industry, there's essentially in the U.S. market three major providers and then right. some feeders. If you look at the daily car rental mm -hmm. business, there's three major companies. Yep. I almost kind of think there's going to be three major mobility providers. Th there is and there isn't. When you start looking on a national scale, you're right. There are just a few national players. When you start looking regionally, there are actually a lot more pockets of regional players in these, 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 even in rental, for example. In the mobility, there will be a somewhat of a consolidation. But the key thing for us is the services we're offering and how can we customize that service? How can we make you want to go to free to move versus some other you know, aggregator or mobility provider? The reality is aggregation will be a limited number of players. And then underneath aggregation, you're going to have different types of car sharing, ride hailing, microtransit, um, peer-to-peer opportunities. Um, you know, we have another partner we've invested in called Travel Car, which is already here in the United States on the West Coast. And it's a peer-to-peer airport-based rental. So it's, it's evolving, right, into a very multimodal kind of environment. And there'll be a lot of players and there'll be consolidation because there are certain companies with, uh, that are writing very big checks, to buy part of or complete ownership in certain things. What we think of it, though, is a little bit differently. I don't want to say altruistic. We want to make money. But at the same time, for us, it's not about substituting for potential lost market share because things are moving to mobility and you want to protect that market share and your production base, right? For us, it's about offering. We truly want to have a customer for life across a very wide uh, mobility need. If you need transportation for a minute, an hour, a day, a week, a month, a year, multiple years, we want to be your solution provider for that. So I really think it's an opportunity for us to define PSA in North America as a mobility transportation company. I know a lot of OEMs have used that word. We truly have the opportunity to roll it out in that way, especially starting with mobility. Well, it's interesting. You know, most car companies are approaching us from being very well established, let's just say in the U.S., and mm -hmm. figuring out how to get into mobility. PSA is really starting up in the U.S. again as a mobility company Correct. that's then going to figure out how it can bring and make its own cars fit into the whole thing. So exactly. very interesting dynamic that's different. Unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap this conversation up. I think we could go on all day long on this. But Larry Dominique, thanks so much for coming in, sharing where PSA North America is going uh, with all this mobility. Of course, I want to thank Michelle Krebs and Paul Eisenstein for being part of this, too. Very good. We're going to have to do it again at some point, and we'll invite you all back when we do that.